matters. Everybody say family matters. Family matters. In case you were wondering, family matters. And uh, there are also some family matters that we discuss, that we're discussing through this book. Um, man, it's just good to be here this morning. It's good to see you here this morning. I'm excited for what God has been doing and will continue to do in our church body. And I just, I, I want to thank you for all being a part of what's going on here at Glad Tidings Assembly of God here in Tinton Falls. God's got a new season for us, church. He's got new things that he's going to do, great things that he's going to do. Well, this morning we're going to be coming from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 11 technically, but we're really going to focus on chapter 8 and, and season it a little bit with chapter 10 because what's going on in these three chapters is Paul is addressing an important topic. He addresses the issue of idolatry. And in these chapters, Paul is giving his readers some insights as to the pitfalls of idolatry if you find yourself practicing it. And I think there's a lot of modern-day application that we can derive from the topic of idolatry. I mean, come on, we got a show called American Idol today that's been going on for a long time that I like. You know, I, I, I am down to that. I'm just saying... Uh, we got some idols in society today. I loved, loved Kobe Bryant. He was an idol to me. You know, LeBron James, he ain't nobody's idol. I'm sorry. Kobe, rest in peace. The greatest. I die on that hill. MJ, still greatest. How many of you ever seen uh, The Last Dance on Netflix? Anybody? Nobody? Really? All right, I got some, I got some of my people in here. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we got idols in society that we got to be real about. Um, so let, let me just ask you a question right off the bat that I want you to start thinking about here this morning. And that's this. Can culture become an idol? I just want that to settle in for a second. I want that to carry a little bit of weight this morning as you ponder that question. Can culture become an idol? Let me give you a definition of idolatry. This is a very simplistic definition, but I think it's a very helpful one nonetheless that's pretty easy to remember. So idolatry is this, anything placed ahead of, instead of, or alongside of God. That's what idolatry is. You know, we can be a little bit more specific with it and what it looks like within the context of sanctified worship to God, but I think this is helpful for us. It's anything. You know, nothing is excluded. Anything, any person that is placed ahead of, instead of, or right alongside of God. So what I think is important for us to understand before we start reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is specifically this reality that Paul decides to address to the, to the, uh, excuse me, to the church at Corinth is something that was sociological, and familial. What I mean by that is within the context of the culture of the city of Corinth, idolatry and idol worship, specifically sacrificial practices, were given to a number of gods. Now, which obviously we think of it, okay, that has religious implications, okay, but it transcends the religious and it gets into the relational circles and it gets into the family circles. 
because what comes with the practice of idolatry that's inerrant within a culture is a value system that you adopt as a people, as a family, as a group of individuals. I mean, we have our own culture here. It's not necessarily that it's bad, but what are those values? And there were pagan religions that were being worshipped as a part of pagan idolatry that had implications in the home, in the families, at work, in the conversations, in the break room with the co-workers that Paul here is trying to say, you need to understand the implications of your actions or your association with individuals who readily are steeped in these practices. So that's what Paul, off the bat, is going to be addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So let's get right into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And it says this. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. If you all reading in your Bibles, you might have seen some quotation marks that start before the word we and end after the word knowledge. That's important. I'll talk about that in a second. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. All right, let's talk about this for a second. Paul, he introduces the topic at hand, idolatry, and then he says, let's talk about this. And he starts with this idea of knowledge and love. And when you see that phrase, we all possess knowledge in quotations, what we can understand from a study of the ancient text and its culture is that this was a phrase that was commonly said by the people of Corinth, specifically within the church. So he's kind of quoting something that they like to say a lot. So what the Corinthians would like to say is, well, we all possess knowledge, right? And within that philosophical system, knowledge was a good thing. They were very intellectually astute, and they aspired to be that. And if you wanted to be a somebody, you were a somebody that knew something. And you were very learned in your lifestyles. And he's saying, all right, I know that's something that you say. We all possess knowledge. And so since we're all on the same page about idolatry, let's talk about this a little bit. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. So here's what Paul does right off the bat. He gives us this kind of point of understanding that I've termed this way. Here it is. Knowledge without love gives birth to a superiority complex. Knowledge without love gives birth to a superiority complex. Here's why. Let, let's take knowledge in this setting. Not, and Listen to me. Knowledge is not a bad thing. But knowledge unbridled by love is a bad thing. And so I see it this way. It's like knowledge is this nuclear warhead that can cause nothing but pain and destruction in someone or many person's lives until love enters in. Because then when you allow love into the situation that can be catastrophic, it disarms it. And it says, no, let's look at this properly. Because here's what we need to understand about love. Love redirects your focus from self to others. You see, I think this is a concept, this is a principle and a word that has lost the integrity of its meaning in today's society. Think about it. I mean, I even do it. I, when, when, when you're going out to eat, I love cookies. I love cookies a bit too much. But when I say I love it, that, that's more indicative of a feeling that I have towards it because of the wonderful response that my taste buds experience in the moment. I don't love the way it feels after I down a dozen cookies. Um, so there, there's a little bit of a, of, a, of a dichotomy there. But 
I say I love it, and that word really has to do with a feeling. Love is a feeling, but it's not just a feeling. It's an action. Because here's the deal. Love, as we see it in Scripture, is never appointed to things. Jesus doesn't say that I love this mountain. Jesus doesn't say that I love my sandals. Jesus doesn't say that I love this building. Jesus always directs his love towards individuals. Because here is what is paramount for something to be considered love. Sacrifice. You cannot have true love if you are unwilling to sacrifice because that is what love is. I guarantee you there are plenty of times that my beautiful wife does not feel like loving me at times, but she recognizes that's my husband, that's my man, and I am going to take a step in a direction that requires some level of sacrifice because that's what this relationship ought to be about. A loving relationship, not just a feeling. So Paul, off the bat, it, it, right off the bat, he's saying, all right, we're going to talk about idolatry because this is an issue that we need to discuss. But before we get there, let me get down to the foundation of what we're talking about. You, he, he, see, he knows the way the Corinthians are going to think. They are very knowledgeable. They're very intellectual. And he's saying right off the bat, I affirm your knowledge. I affirm that you know a thing or two about your theology, about your faith, about your walk, about your life. But let me tell you something. That knowledge you don't fully understand yet. You haven't been fully realized in the revelation of your theology of God, so I need you to exercise some love in this moment to understand that you're going to need to sacrifice your pride and a little bit of your social standings. All right, so that's what he gets off right at the bat. Let's keep going. Verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's quotation, all right? So again, he's quoting something that he knows they say regularly. And that, here's another quotation, there is no God but one. All right, that's something that they also say. Both true statements. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, catch this, parenthetical statement, as indeed there are many little g-gods and many little l-lords, yet for us... Christians, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. All right, so right here, in this argument against idolatry and raising the significance of how dangerous it is in the eyes of the Corinthians, who are, have it steeped in their culture, he's saying, let me appeal to something that you agree with off the bat. So he's appealing to their knowledge. He's appealing to a language that they know very well. He says, you all like to go around and you like to say that an idol is nothing at all in this world. It's just something that is part of the substance of this earth, which God created. It, it's just, it's a statue. That holds no power over me. There's no juju in that thing. And Paul's like, you're right. You're right. That holds no power of you. Don't think that that holds power of you. So you are right in that statement. That is a true statement. He goes, all right. Now let me talk about something else you say. There is no God but one. So in response to the idea of idolatry, the Corinthians were saying, well, guess what? There is one true God that we serve. But here's where Paul says, all right. Now there's an aspect of this that you're missing. There are realities of little g-gods. And this is where Paul delves into the reality of the demonic. 
and the satanic forces in this world that have situated themselves in positions of power behind the scenes as authoritarian figures over this world who do functions as little gods and little lords. But we all know that we serve the one true God. And we need to understand that Paul is bringing back to the remembrance the Shema in the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You shall have no, and then he goes into the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. So wait a minute. We've got to re-understand our understanding of the idea of monotheism. Monotheism is the worship of one God. And we look at that and we automatically assume there is only one God. There is only one true God. An omniscient, omnipresent, all-knowing being. There is only one. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things in this world forces of darkness that will attempt to reside and take up a position of which only the one true God ought to reside in in our lives. And so when the Israelites understood the idea of monotheism, they weren't saying, well, there's nothing else in this world that I could give glory to. There's no other. They, no, they recognized that there were things that they could praise as the one true God, but a monotheistic worldview was, no, but there is only one God to whom I will dedicate my life to because he is the all-powerful God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. They are lies, and they are liars, but they are going to try to fight for a position in my life. Okay. So he appeals to that right off the bat, and he's bringing it to this idea of the demonic. Let's jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 through 22. Here's what it says. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. All right, stop. We're going to keep reading. But right now, Paul is appealing their understanding to the Lord's Supper. He's saying, all right, when we practice communion together, when we practice communion together, what are we doing? We are remembering and honoring the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us that is the reason for our hope. We are cleansed because of the sacrifice, the love that Jesus showed us. And he goes, we as a church, we practice that regularly, right? We'll understand the implications of that. When we receive Jesus, we are brought into the fold. Corinthians is taught, that's why it's called family matters, because we've been described as the house, as the building, as the lump of dough, uh, as the body. And right here, he's saying, as the one loaf. We are all in this together. We are unified. And that's why we'll see later when Paul says, when one part suffers, the whole part suffers. One part rejoices, the whole part rejoices. And so right here, Paul's saying, okay, understand that we are united in Christ. And he's talking about idolatry. So here's what he says next. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. We'll get to that. Verse 19. Here it is. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. It's not. Idols are nothing. Even the sacrificial process to them are nothing when you know who you are in Jesus. All right? All right? But 
Here it is. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to what? Demons. Not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Here's the point I want to make to you. Idols might be nothing, but the devil behind them is definitely something. Okay? I need you to think about that because we're about to really contextualize this for us in the 21st century in the year 2020. See, what happens here, and I think it's really interesting, he referenced the Israelites in verse 19, and when we study that, we know it's specifically jumping back to the book of Exodus, specifically verse 32, uh, excuse me, chapter 32, verses roughly 5 to 6, but you can go back before that, where we know the Israelites were waiting for Moses to come back down from the mountain of God, and they got impatient. They had just been delivered from enslavement to Egypt. They had just seen the Red Sea parted by the power of God. And when the enemies tried to afford themselves the same blessing that God had reserved for the Israelites, we know what happened. They were snuffed out and the waters caved in on them. They come to the other side and they come to the mountain of God. They see this mighty display of the manifest presence of God. And now Moses is on the mountain with God, receiving from God the direction that God has for the prosperity and the future of the people. So all of this is for the Israelites. And then the Israelites, because of impatience, they say, you know, Moses is up there long enough. It's been about 40 days. It's probably dead. Wild animal got him or something like that. Hey, Aaron, Aaron, come over here. Hey, why don't you take this gold that we plundered from the Egyptians? Why don't you take it? Why don't you melt it down and make a golden calf? Because we need to ascribe worship to something and so we're going to worship this calf and what's interesting is that when you read the book of exodus they were saying they were still crediting the worship to yahweh to the one true god but it was in the form of the calf and god meanwhile is literally giving the instructions to moses in the ten commandments you shall have no other gods before me and what do they do they create a god to worship you see, this is why I believe the enemy works so deceitfully because he is going to manifest himself in ways that we think are right and proper and he's going to twist it in such a demonic way that he's going to take things that ought not to be worshipped and say, no, God says to worship these things because these things are right. Culture. you got to think about that. Culture. I got another point for you that I want you to think about. God's house isn't shared space. God's house isn't shared space. So when we understand the reality that we are one unit, one body, in whom dwells the Holy Spirit of God individually, you, you need to understand that. God's Spirit dwells in all of his sons and daughters. And he leads us and he guides us and he counsels us and he helps us and he convicts us. He doesn't override our will, but he helps to show us the way that is the way. That, that's, that's what God does. And he ought to be in his rightful place in our lives. And he's saying, when you associate yourself with idolatrous practices, you are asking me to rent out the rooms in my house. 
And I'm not about to do that because there can be no association between light and darkness, between good and evil. And so we've got to understand clearly what is right and what is wrong so that God can remain in his rightful place within our lives. God's house isn't shared space. You belong to God. You are not slaves to this world. You are not slaves to men. You are not slaves to an ideology, to your culture. You are not slaves to what the news says. You're not slaves to what somebody said to you to demean you, to break you down. You are God's. And you are a new creation in his sight. Okay, now, now let's really put ourselves in the shoes of the Corinthians at this point to really understand what they're going through. So we understand that in this pagan culture, there were, there were idol feasts where meat had been prepared in the ritualistic practice to pagan gods. So they would kill the animal, they'd prepare it, and they'd get the meat ready. Now, there was participation in the pagan temples by eating that meat, but there were also realities where they didn't want to waste the meat. And so they would take the leftover meat and they would bring it to the marketplace and they would just sell it for anybody of any religious, philosophical background to come and buy and bring it home and to make dinner for their family. Now the implications of that are important because that is what is an issue here. And Paul is addressing this very readily and in 10 he gets really practical with it. And it's interesting how he makes it extremely, again, sociological. He makes it about the relational circles that you find yourselves in. Because here's a problem. You have some Christian believers who understand, you know what? This food has been sacrificed to idols. And while it holds no power over me, I do understand the value system that is attached to it that is inherently demonic. And I don't really want to have anything to do with that. But I also don't want to be rude when my friends invite me over for dinner and say, no, thank you, vegetarian only. Uh, I don't want to be rude to that. And Paul, you know, he does, in chapter 10, I'll just address it now at the end of it, he does give a specific instruction. He goes, unless it comes to your knowledge that it has been sacrificed to an idol, just eat it. It's all right. It holds no power over you. But if it has been made expressly apparent and clear to you, hey, we want you to know that we sacrificed this, this meat was used in sacrificial worship to this guy. He goes, don't eat it. It's for the sake of the conscience of the individual present with you. Not only the unbeliever, but Paul is going to, we're going to get to it in a moment, the baby believer, the infant in Christ, the newly saved, because bring it back to knowledge. They don't have the level of knowledge that you do in your theological understanding, all right? So that's kind of the setting that's going on. And Paul's addressing this because while it wasn't necessarily happening as far as we know, he saw it as a problem that would happen where... Just imagine, right, you're going to the marketplace. You are a seasoned saint. You're a believer. You grew up in the church. You know the Lord. Your theology is strong. You went to Sunday school. You went to every Bible camp. You went to the seminars. You went to everything. You got a pretty good understanding. You got your different biblical certificates, whatever they might be. And you're going to the marketplace, and you know personally, you know, this, this stuff doesn't really matter to me because I know the God that I serve, and I know his power, and this is nothing. It holds no power over me. But say, just, just for, for an instance, you have a young believer with you, someone who is new in Christ in their faith with the Lord. And they're kind of confused because they came from a pagan background. And they say, well, I know where that meat comes from. I used to shop here every Tuesday, and I was at the temple before I came shopping. I know where that meat comes from. But I thought we only worship one God. And if Paul's saying, if you and your maturity are like, 
Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. It's nothing. It's just idols are nothing in this world. We just serve one God. I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to see this in verse 7 through 12. You know, let's read it and I'll come back to what I wanted to get at. All right? Verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Not everyone possesses the knowledge that we as seasoned saints might have. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, underdeveloped, not yet fully there, it is defiled. Okay, stop right there. The knowledge that Paul is specifically speaking of here has to do with the Spirit of God and the illumination that the Spirit of God gives us through a consistent, long-term walk with Him. In other words, there are things that the Spirit of God will reveal to us in His timing when He knows we're ready to receive it. He knows when we need to hear it, and He knows when we need to learn it. And he's saying that's for the Spirit of God to reveal to them, but you, if you are not exercising love... We're going to get to what that love looks like at the very end, as Paul says. But that love, if you're unwilling to sacrifice for that individual and just apply your lofty, well-learned knowledge to this baby Christian and just say, oh, you ought to understand the way that I understand. It's no problem for you. You defile their mind. Let me give you a definition of what Paul means when he refers to the conscience as weak. Here it is. A weak conscience is one that is unable to make appropriate moral judgments because of a lack of spiritual understanding or development. That's what a weak conscience is. It's unable to discern what is truly right and wrong in certain circumstances because they haven't been exposed to that circumstance yet because God hasn't allowed them to yet. And he's saying to them, the mature believer, you need to exercise love in your teaching. Don't expect someone to be where God has not yet prepared them to be. Be careful in your walk with them. Lead them gently. Lead them carefully. But I believe this has so much to do with the justification of self-indulgence. I really do. Because I believe that is human nature. It's not so much that we want to flaunt our knowledge to this individual. It's more, man, I want to have what I came to enjoy. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that I got to suffer the consequences. Let me tell you why you're okay to enjoy this the way that I enjoy it. And we force feed this ideology down their throats. Verse 9. Verse 9. Put a pin right there. We force feed this ideology or, or this developed theology that they're not ready to receive. We force it down their throats and, pause, let's read. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The weak, the individual who is unable to make proper moral judgments because of a lack of spiritual maturity. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Here's the point that I need to make, and I need you to hear me, and you need to hear me well. Our freedoms aren't meant to imprison others. Paul here says you have been given liberty that has been privileged to you because of the death of Jesus Christ upon a cross. 
In other words, understand you are not shackled to the philosophical viewpoints of this world. You are not shackled by a false system of beliefs that you were once in. You are not shackled to a predominant culture that you have been taught for so many years. You're not shackled to any of that. I have liberated your mind. I have liberated your souls to understand who you are in the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. And so if Jesus does that, and he did so how? Through the ultimate representation of love. I don't think Jesus wanted to die. He knew that was his purpose, and that's why he came, and he was faithful to it. But when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, it said his sweat was like drops of blood. Imagine the anxiety that he went through, but he went through because he knew it was God's will to exercise love to humanity, broken humanity, and says, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, not my will, but thy will be done, Jesus. And so, if that's God's plan, and that's God's purpose, and he has liberated us, who are we to look at someone else in the faith and to denounce the proper procedural spiritual developmental order that God has prescribed for the discipleship process? Who are we to say, you know what? I'm going to give you a head start. I'm going to help you where where I, I wish I had some help to understand and to worry a whole lot less and just to be able to enjoy yourself. Why, why don't you just partake of this? Because it doesn't hurt you. You're okay. You got the grace of Jesus Christ that covers a multitude of sins. You just keep living the way you've been living. It's good. All right? You imprison them. Here's why. When Paul says that you cause the destruction of their weak conscience... It literally carries with it this idea of a, of a compass. Think about a compass that has been demagnetized. So in other words, it can never point true north. And so imagine these weak conscious individuals whose minds have been seared by the unbridled knowledge, unaccompanied by love, mature believers, and they have this compass. And they're trying to say, God, which way do I go to follow you? What, what is right and what is wrong? God, I'm in this kind of situation in my life where I don't know how to handle this relationship. I don't know how to handle this addiction. I don't know what is right in my life, but I'm looking to you. But that's right. I remember when so-and-so in the church who had, who's been a believer for 20 years said, don't worry about it. You're fine. Okay, so then this way might be right. When they're leading themselves to destruction, Paul literally says you're, you're leading them to hell. And you have seared their minds so that now they are unable, incapable of being able to make right moral judgments. Understand the power that we have. Seasoned saints, I'm speaking to you. Understand the authority that you have been given in Jesus' name to help develop a new believer. The, the responsibility that we are called to steward someone carefully and not take it for granted. Paul ultimately says in verse 13, he says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So what Paul is saying here, he mentioned liberties and rights that we have been given in Jesus. And he goes, you have the right to exercise those rights, but never at the expense of love, which ought to be directed towards the individual, which means you might need to sacrifice some of the privileges and the freedoms that you do have. You know, you know I, I don't want to make it about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to bring it there because it's a great illustration today. Let's talk about alcohol, all right? 
Now, I'm not, about up here, I'm not up here to say that if you drink a beer, you're going to hell. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says if you live drunken lifestyles, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right? I personally don't drink. And I encourage individuals to stay away from that because I believe it is such a vice that the enemy wants to use to bring destruction and addiction and pain to so many people. Just because something's good and okay doesn't mean it's beneficial, as Paul says. There's something behind the process. All right? But let's actually take this. And you all know where I'm going with this. You got somebody new in the faith who came from a lifestyle of alcoholism and they've been delivered. But you don't want to give it up, especially when you go out and have some fun with them. And you want to have a beer and, and you say, you, you know what, you need to understand. Young believer, you need to understand. You're free in Jesus. You're not going to hell if you partake in that. You've seared their mind because you've opened a door for them to go back to a past addiction. And now, where you might not have an addiction, they are re-steeped in that addiction. But now they're trying to justify that addiction and say, I'm, a free, I'm free in Jesus' name. That's a problem. All right, that, that's, a, that's a really easy, really, in my opinion, a really easy modern-day application to bring into this idea of idolatry. But I want to bring it back to culture. When we ask the question, can culture become an idol? And that's a hot topic right now. Here's what I'm going to say. If culture causes you to compromise your calling, it's idolatrous. Listen, culture is not a bad thing. There are many things to be proud of in your culture. Every one of us, no matter where we're from, no matter the color of our skin, our race, no matter what, culture is not a bad thing. That, that's the plain and simple answer. But there are aspects behind every single one of our cultures that have become a bad thing. There are little nuanced positions within our family culture, our people's culture, our religious culture. Yeah, there's culture within even the family of God that we have got to be putting under a microscope and saying, is this, is this leading us to compromise our call? And Paul's understanding of the word call within these last few chapters is that which is our moment of salvation, the genesis of our relationship with the Lord. So when we understand the word calling in this context, it's saying, is your walk with the Lord being compromised because of an affirmation and a strict adherence to your culture? Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't compromise but clarifies who we are. It doesn't compromise. It doesn't call you to compromise who you are, but it clarifies who you are. You have been created in the image of God with a specific and very unique upbringing, a very unique background, a very unique ethnicity, a unique gender, everything. You can go down the list. God created you to be that person. But the enemy, at some point in time in history of your life or, or any kind of life past, has rooted himself deeply and have taken those particular nuances of your culture and has twisted that which God created good. We see that all the way back in the beginning of the Garden of Eden itself. God didn't make mistakes. He created Adam and Eve individualistically with uniqueness to cohabitate in perfect unity. But Satan came in and he goes, well, actually, maybe this is, no, this is what God says. And you know what, let me tell you, that's not really going to be the case. It's like Satan is the epitome of the representation of the individual that we're talking about who leads someone astray. That, catch this, you and I can become, even as Christians. 
when it comes to the gospel, God wants to restore us as the original created beings that he intended us to be with the proper nature of our cultures and say, let, let, let me help you understand the way that I created you. Let me show you who you are because of Jesus. And let me show you the way the enemy has twisted your minds to believe a lie about who you never were meant to be and who others are saying you ought to be. And listen to me. When I say who others say you ought to be, I'm not just talking about the opposing sides out in the world. I'm talking about people within our own inner circles. I'm talking about your family. I'm talking about your friends. People who are going to call you not who you really are. People are going to call you bigots. People are going to call you hypocrites because you ought to be on my side with this. Not God's side. And we need to know what he says. And it's not always easy. And I'm not saying that there's a cookie-cutter answer to this topic of how do, we, how do we rectify who our culture is within the kingdom of God. It's not an easy answer. But that's why we need to look to the Word of God and always exercise love in order to be able to discern, God, what is it that you intended for us? So if the gospel doesn't compromise but clarifies who we are, then I need to make another sub-point to this. And this is where we're going to bring it home. Christianity is not morally conditional, but consequential. Okay, I need to explain what I mean by that. When I say that Christianity is not morally conditional, but consequential, let's go back to the point of Genesis of our newfound relationship with the Lord. When we said, God, here I am, I need you. Okay, so let's, let's take the position, you know, I just played out in my head as if, you know, this is Jesus speaking. And he's looking at you and your, your brokenness and your act of repentance. And this is what I always say. Jesus doesn't expect you to change who you are before he receives you. But listen to me carefully. Jesus does expect us to recognize the need for change. He says, I, I, don't, I don't need you to have X, Y, and Z all put together in your life. I don't need you to fix yourself. I receive you as you are. But as I said last week, God's not going to leave you as you are. That's why it's not conditional, but it's consequential. So that when we say, God, I recognize my brokenness. I need you to come into my life. Once we recognize that I'm a child of God, we cannot now continue to live as we once did, defined by the brokenness of the cultures that we came from. Because now we are defined by the culture of the kingdom of God, which says you are a new creation in Christ, and I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly, so abide in me, not the lies of this world that Satan is trying to perpetuate in you from generation to generation to generation. America doesn't have the answer for you. A particular party doesn't have the answer for you. They might give you a little bit of particular leanings in a way that can help you understand some stuff. Listen to me, even your parents, God bless your parents who love you, they don't even have the, the right answer for you always. They might even have the wrong answer for you. And don't hate them, they're human beings just like you and me. All right, the illustration that I was going to give way earlier about something that I believe is really necessary, and, and I'm not going to really hit on it too hard, but I, when I was thinking about this message, I thought, God, what's a modern-day application for the idea of idolatry? And 
And the reason I came up with culture is because I stumbled upon Beyonce's newest album, Black is King. All right? It's got some good music in there. All right? But let me read for you the lyrics of her very first song, Bigger. First of the album. Ready? If you feel insignificant, you better think again. Better wake up because you're a part of something way bigger. You're a part of something way bigger. Here it is. You are not just a speck in the universe. You're not just some words in a Bible verse. You're the living word. For those of you who are Christian, you should understand the implications of what she just said. The Bible does say that we are a speck in the universe. The Bible does talk about our position and who we are in God. And then the Bible does talk about the living word. And that position is ascribed to one being and one being only, Jesus Christ. So that caught my attention. And I did a little bit more research into this. And I found out that while this wasn't the first time, it's been going on for a few years, uh, Beyonce ascribes herself to uh, be likened to the ancient Nigerian goddess Ocean. O-S-H-U-N. And this is an ancient goddess of fertility and sensuality. And it kind of explains a lot when you see the way that now Beyonce presents herself and the way that she talks. And if you go to uh, one of the other songs in the album, something dedicated to her daughter, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, she specifically says, I am ocean. And so I want you to think about that for a second because this, this is another very, very, it can seem trivial, but now there's so much weight to it. You know, I've had conversations over the years uh, with individuals about listening to secular music, all right? I've listened to secular music, and I still, every once in a while, do. My wife probably more than me at times, and I've been in conversations about this all the time. And I kind of have the same responses that I feel are reminiscent to what we saw and we just read in this chapter about idols are nothing. It's just music. I know who I am in Jesus, and it's not going to cause me to uh, relinquish the integrity of my faith. It doesn't hurt me. I can listen to it. All right, and there have just been so many arguments that I've had with individuals, and I've flip-flopped back and forth, but eh, it matters. Eh, it doesn't matter. Eh, it really matters. No, not really. But after really seeing what's become specifically of the influence that a hip-hop artist like Beyonce has, and think about the influence that she has, think about it. I'm sure all of us have been influenced in some way by her in this room. Um, a lot of young women aspire to be like her. And it's not simply now an argument of, well, that, it, that music isn't glorifying God. It's not just an argument about, well, that, that music kind of has some profane language in it, whatever, or it glorifies some certain things. But now it specifically is glorifying the deification of a false idol that she aligns herself with. I mean, you can't get more practical than that within Scripture. And we've been trying to justify the reasons why these kind of cultural false vices are okay for so long. Now, there's no justification for it. Look at the conduct of her character lived throughout her life. And listen, I'm not saying here that you're a sinner going to hell if you listen to secular music. That's not what this is about. I just need you to start thinking about this a little bit more. Like I'm thinking about it. Thinking maybe there's a little bit more harm that is behind this that can be done to my spiritual integrity by exposing myself to it. You know, maybe there is, maybe that might just be an idol and I was nothing, but there is a devil behind that idol. Because think about it, it's a representation of her value system. And even Beyonce herself who carries so much influence is saying, you and I, we, you know what? 
The Bible doesn't even know who we are. You know, I agreed with that first part of the line. If you feel insignificant, you better think again. You better wake up because you're a part of something way bigger. I agree with that. In light of what the gospel says, which she openly contradicts in the very next few lines. She completely disintegrates the imperative of Scripture. I believe that you are not who culture defines you as. I believe that you and I are a part of something way bigger, and that is carrying the message of Jesus Christ to a dying and broken world. That's actually sharing a message of hope, not sharing a message of continue to be privy to addictions and vices. It's not about trying to make yourself better in the eyes of this world. It's not about trying to elevate yourself to a level of prosperity so that your friends like the clothes that you wear and the car that you drive and how much money you got in your bank. That's not what you would strive to be a part of. You're a new creation in Christ. I want to ask right now, what we're going to start doing from now on is we're going to have our prayer team. So if I can have Adrian Curtis, uh, I'm going to have Audrey, uh, Linda, I'm going to have you this week just, um, no, Tracy, actually, you're going to stay there uh, this week. But if I can have you three come forward, uh, I've just asked some members to be available and ready as we close our service. If you need to talk and you need to pray and you need someone to pray for you, we are here for you. Okay, we are here for you. Now, we're going to practice social distancing. Understand you are not required to come forward. We just want to open these altars for you to have the opportunity to have someone in Christ pray for you and to hear you and to talk with you. All right? Could you stand with me this morning as we, we dedicate this time to the Lord? I know we talked about a lot, and there's a lot that we have to think about. And I, I think leaving today, I really believe as I was preparing the sermon, I thought as I was praying it, there's going to be a weight on some hearts as they leave this place. There's going to be a weight. And let me tell you something. I can't always alleviate that weight because sometimes that weight is necessary. All right? Know that you are loved here, and you are loved because we are real here, and we are authentic here, and we care about life in Jesus and what that means. And we're willing to take any conversation as far as we possibly can about any topic. That obviously can't be covered in the entirety of a span of a message. But we're going to pray, and we're going to have you be dismissed, and then we're just going to allow for the altars to be open if anybody needs some prayer or some talk. All right, so let's pray. God, I thank you. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word that we have received. Jesus, I thank you for your willingness and your desire to all those years ago talk about topics that you knew would still be issues today jesus are there idols that we have allowed to become instituted in our lives god are there things in our lives that we know that we need to stop being so subservient to are the things that we have allowed knowledge about our walk with you lead to arrogance so that we allow things that are destructive to remain in our lives God, are we allowing our lives to be lived in such a prideful way that we do not care about the spiritual vitality of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we're going to allow them to stumble? God, I pray in Jesus' name that the weight that would be on our hearts would remain so that we can find a place of understanding of what it means to be a follower of you, what it means to be salt and light in this world. God, I pray that there would be your spirit's conviction upon us in this place, but Lord, that there would be a spirit of restoration. Restore us, I pray. God, for the minds that have been seared and destructed because of the lives of individuals in their lives who took them for granted, Jesus, for the minds that can no longer discern right from wrong, 
or our feeling now that, you know what, God, I haven't been able to, but you're working. Lord, we pray for those individuals right now. God, let there be restoration for the lies that the enemies have been forcing down the throats of us for so long. God, would we experience love and love truly once again? God, I pray that we would start to love you and love each other so that then we can have the face of the Lord shine upon us, that we would be known by God as your Apostle Paul wrote in the third verse. God, would we live lives of love towards one another? God, I pray against arrogance. I pray against pride. I pray against anger. I pray against unforgiveness. Jesus, I pray for insecu against insecurities. I pray against confusion. And I pray specifically against unbelief. I pray against a hard heart, a stale heart, an angry heart. Jesus, right now by your spirit, God, would you bring restoration to all that are here today? God, for those watching at home right now, God, would you bring restoration to them in Jesus' name? God, would you allow us to experience freedom in Jesus so that we can live freely for Jesus, which means that we would exercise love in Jesus' name. God, be with us throughout this week. I pray for everybody here who is experiencing turmoil, trial, pain, and difficulty. God, bring restoration to their lives. Bring restoration to their jobs, to their relationships, to their pain, to their brokenness, to their minds. God, we thank you. God, we praise you. And in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning.